Now, our text this morning is, is Ephesians 3, verses 10 to 13, and we're going to revisit some concepts that we were not able to touch upon last time. We're going to talk again about God's manifold wisdom, his plan for the ages, and how we, as a Gentile church, fit into that in the plan of God. And so we have a number of things that, just for sake of time, you know, we were having so much fun last week. That uh, there were just a number of things in the passage we didn't have time to get to and concepts that we need to talk about. And so I decided to go ahead and uh, give one more week to this section before we jump ahead and start the actual prayer for enablement that starts in verse 14 to the end of the chapter. So, uh, so we had, again, so much fun last time that we, we couldn't get to some of these concepts. So we're going to have no fun today. We're just going to focus and get right down to business and no, just kidding. It's, it's God's word, so there's nothing more fun than to discuss God's word here together. But I would like to come back and, and just camp on these verses a little longer because there's so much here for our learning. So again, recall, we're right in the middle of this section, this paragraph from verse 8 to verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 3, where we're labeling it the purpose of the church, the purpose of the church. So last time, if you were with us, we, we began this paragraph by looking at verses 8 and 9, the preaching of Paul, the privilege that he has to preach, and the purpose of that preaching to unveil the grace of God, the riches uh, of, of the unsearchable riches of Christ, to unveil that to his audience and to help them gain an understanding of who they are and their purpose in the plan of God, which is really then what he expands on, verses 10 to 13, the purpose of the church. So last time, we, we talked through this idea of the grand drama that is unfolding on the stage of human history and how we have a role to play, a part to play in this grand drama. We as the church have a part in what God is doing. So we looked at the actors who's involved being chiefly, primarily, the, the protagonist of all of history. The story of redemption is God himself, he's the primary character, he's the protagonist, it's all about him, his power, his love, his wisdom, the character of God on display through human history. But we have a part to play in that. So we too are actors on the stage. The audience are the principalities and powers in heavenly places. We looked at that last time in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. It describes that they are the ones watching as God is unfolding his character, revealing his character as he unfolds history and so we talked then about this conflict resolution. What's the storyline? What is God doing? And we barely touched upon that last time. And I have so much more to say. And so I said, you know, let's just do another sermon here and talk through some of this, some more details on this grand storyline of what God is doing from eternity past to eternity future and how we have a part to play in that. So what I'd like to talk about today is we look again kind of at that third point, the conflict resolution side, the storyline of God's grand drama that is unfolding through human history. I want to revisit that by looking at these big ideas. First, we're just going to build the case, the concept being the kingdom of God, that there is the big theme that ties the Bible together, that, that unites all of human history is found in the kingdom of God idea. And I want to just define that, illustrate that uh, for a little bit, which helps us understand what's the point of history? What is God doing in history? Why did God create? What is he doing? Where is history headed? And that was some of those big ideas. But then how is God going to get us there? How, was, how is it different, what God did? Because remember last time, 
we talked through the idea of the manifold wisdom of God, right? The idea of the, man, the manifold literally means many folds. It, it's, it's complicated, it's complex, it's ornate, it's beautiful what God is doing through the, the epics, the stages, the eras of human history. And yet, as, as we advance from one stage of history to the next, we see how God's plan, as we, you know, again, I use that timeline of history illustration. I got this big old long timeline. It's, it comes in a book. It's about like this. And it has a bunch of folds in there. But if you unfold the entire timeline, it's like 25 feet long or something like that. And if there's all these different folds to the timeline. And the idea is that as you understand what God's doing in this era... Well, then you unfold it and you watch what he's doing in the next era and the next era and the next era. And then before long, you have this breathtakingly beautiful portrait of what God has done and is doing and will do for human history. And that idea of, uh, is what I'd like to talk about is how God in his wisdom is, is enacting his purposes and his plan, but he's doing it in this era, this stage of history is different than what he did before. There's a difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant. Our role as a Gentile church rather than the nation of Israel that God used primarily on the pages of the Old Testament and how that works and why God is doing it that way. There's so much more to the story that we didn't have time to talk about last time but is worth talking about because it helps us grasp our place in the story. And so that's what I'd like to to spend one more week developing some of these concepts And then we'll move on to to Paul's prayer for enablement, starting in the next verse, verse 14 and following. But again, if you got your Bible, let me just read briefly, reread our text. I guess for sake of context, we'll go back to verse 8 and read down to verse uh, 13. But really, 10 to 13 is kind of our focus here. But let's look again. He says, verse 8, unto me, Paul speaking, unto me, who am less than the least of all the saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church or through the church it might be known the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he has purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, it's an eternal purpose. God has already been planning this. He's always been planning this, but we are in a special stage that was not known earlier, right? That says it was hid in the pages of the Old Testament, according to verse 9, but is now being revealed the wisdom of God, the next fold, the next era, the next epoch of human history is underway, Paul tells us. But it's according to his eternal purpose. So he goes on in verse 12, he says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him, wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. And we ended a little bit uh, last time with, with that application that Paul's making in verse 13, the point being that if there is a purpose and a plan to history, and if God is taking history somewhere, then and everything has a purpose in that plan, then Paul says, don't worry don't be sorrowful, don't be troubled at my affliction. Because remember, Paul is sitting in prison as he's writing this epistle. Book of Ephesians is one of the so-called prison epistles of the apostle Paul. He's sitting in uh, Rome and underneath his first Roman imprisonment from AD 60 to 62. And he is sitting there penning this, this letter and he's saying, don't be sorrowful at my tribulation. Why? Because it has a purpose in the plan of God. 
So much so that he says, it is for your glory, your benefit. But again, as we understand, as we attempt to understand this eternal purpose of God that he references here uh, in our text, in in verse uh, 11 in particular, and how we are a stage in this redemptive plan, we need to zoom out. We want to think, I want you to think big picture here today as we consider the concept of the kingdom of God. Now, I'd like to point out that uh, Matthew 6, 10, all right, I'd love to say there's a lot of places we could go for this, and I struggle picking just one. There's so many places in the Bible that this theme comes up. But I have selected Matthew 6, 10 because it's well-known, easy to remember. Most of you have it memorized whether you realize it or not. And it is a beautiful one-verse summary of the Bible storyline. Remember Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10? The disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us to pray. Jesus teaches them to pray. And in Matthew 6 and verse 10, he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Help me out, finish it. On earth. See, you did know it, right? I knew you. I knew you did. I knew you had it in you. But the reason I select that is because it's it's well known. Uh, Most of you know it. But it's also a beautiful summary of the storyline of the Bible, namely that God's kingdom is coming to earth, that he will rule and reign on earth as he does in heaven. That is the key theme of the Bible, I'm personally convinced. In other words, when we consider this concept of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God generally refers to God as the creator and cosmic ruler of all things. You could go to a number of passages. We won't forsake a time right now, but jot these down. Psalm 24, Psalm 47, Psalm 103 are just a few. It's a tiny sample list of dozens we could select from that deal with the subject of God as the creator and cosmic ruler of the universe. In other words, God is king and he sits on his throne and he made all things and he directs history. But when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, It's also referring to something more specific, not merely the fact that God's the creator and cosmic ruler. That is true. That's always true. It's always been and always will be true. However, when the Bible speaks of the kingdom of God, it's also referring to something more specific, namely that God is the author and finisher of history, that he will rule on earth as Jesus taught us to pray. He will rule on earth as he rules in heaven. In other words, he is bringing his kingdom to earth. He is going to, as he did in the beginning, as I say in your notes, Genesis 1 and Revelation 22. We'll talk about this a little bit more in a moment. But these are the bookends of the Bible. The bookends of the Bible. And they, the Bible ends the same way it began, with the concept that God is the author and finisher of history, that he has created mankind in his image to rule earth as he does heaven. And this idea of the, the wedding of heaven and earth under the cosmic rule of God, is the theme of the scripture. So if you got your Bible, let's go back just briefly. Go to Genesis chapter 1. Let's talk about this briefly. I just want to talk you through this. As much as time will allow, we will go to different passages. I have, as usual, way too many passages to fit into the hour. But nonetheless, we will do our level best to work through some of these concepts. But I want you to think big picture. Because once you understand the big picture, you now understand where you fit in it. I don't know about you, but to me, that is hugely helpful to understand who I, who I am, where I come from, what's my identity, my purpose, etc. Well, I can't understand my place if I don't understand God's plan. I got to understand the big picture before I can appreciate where I fit into it. Well, what's the big picture? Genesis 1, 28 to, or 26 to 28, day six of the creative week, 
God says this, verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over every, uh, or over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. We could go to a number of other passages that reinforce this concept. I don't have it in your notes, but jot it down. Psalm 8, Hebrews 2, or a couple other places that tell us explicitly that God's original arrangement at creation involved mankind being made in his image, in the image of God. Why? So that we could rule the earth as God rules in heaven, that we could represent God on earth, that we could be many icons, in fact, is the old... Uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. He uses the word icon, that we would be many icons of God, that we would represent, we would resemble God, that we would be on earth image bearers of God. His character, his means, his purposes would be accomplished in and through us as, you know, via proxy, if you will, that we are serving on earth and ruling on earth as God rules in heaven. That was the intention of the original creation. But if you know the story... The Bible says that the entrance of sin ruptured this original arrangement. If you continue reading, you you get to Genesis chapter 3. Paul will elaborate on this idea later in Romans chapter 18 verses, or I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 18 to verse 25. Paul will elaborate on this. But the reality is that the entrance of sin ruptured this original arrangement. However, is that the end of the story? No, because if you and I, and I, I I've, it's not original with me, but I heard it said one time and it just kind of made me laugh. But if you and I were God, and thank God we're not, but nonetheless, if we were God and we were the author of human history and we were writing our own Bible, I don't know about you, but it, my Bible would probably be about three chapters thick. In the beginning, I created all things. Man messed up and sinned. I judged them. End of story. Right? I mean, it's kind of like, that's it, right? That's the Bible right there. But if you read God's book, notice, I mean, you've got just a couple pages right here at the beginning, right? That's the fall into sin. But then you have all of this stuff in between. You have all this. And this is what God is doing to restore that creation. So much so that when we get to Revelation 22, it's back to the beginning. It's the way it was in the beginning. Again, Jesus summarized this idea, this intention of God to restore all Uh, of his creation back to the place it was intended to be, Jesus summarized it well in our key verse, Matthew 6.10. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught us to pray for that. Because why? That is the intention of God. That is what he's doing from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22. God is in that plan, that process of redemption, restoring all things the way it was intended at the beginning. In fact, this has already been a theme in our study of the book of Ephesians. Do you remember this? Paul put it this way. Ephesians 1 and verse 10, Paul put it this way, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he, God, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. This was part of the plan of God. We've already seen this. We gave a sermon to it back then in Ephesians 1 and verse 10. But this is the same idea that Jesus taught us to pray for in Matthew 6, 10. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Paul just simply rephrases it. Same idea. But there is coming a a climax to history. Time is not timeless. 
Time has an end. It has a climax. It has a purpose. History is headed somewhere, and God is going to reconsolidate all things back beneath the headship of Christ. Christ is the last Adam, meaning he will fulfill the function. He will serve the purpose, fulfill the role of the first Adam to rule and reign over this earth as the perfect image bearer of God. And the Bible is all about how God is going to accomplish this. So much so, if you got your Bible, go ahead and pop over to Revelation 22. I keep reading it or alluding to it. Let's read it. Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. The coming climax of history will occur when heaven and earth unite or reunite. And God's people will rule and reign with him for all of eternity. Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5 gives us a snapshot of this. This is where the Bible ends. Revelation 22, verse 1 to 5 says this. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielding her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. Right? That curse, is a, it's hearkening back, all the way back to Genesis 3. There's no more curse in Revelation 22, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and the servants, his servants shall serve him. And they, that is his servants, that's us, believers in Christ who are part of the Lamb's book of life, who are granted entrance into this new Jerusalem. It says, verse 4, they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they shall need no candle neither light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and that they shall reign forever and ever. That's the happily ever after ending that the Bible tells us about. We're not there yet, but history is heading there. So this concept is, again, I mentioned a moment ago, but this is the book ends of the Bible. The Bible ends the same way that it began. There's remarkable symmetry, and I've taught on this before in both a Genesis series and a Revelation series, so I won't reproduce it here. But there's dozens of parallels between Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Revelation chapters 21 and 22. The symmetry is remarkable. The Bible ends the same way it began. And these so-called bookends of the Bible, as I call them, reveal a lot about God and his plan. However, there's also major milestones along the way that help us marvel at what God is doing. That's what the Bible is trying to help us see is that here's where history began, this is where it's going to end, but this is how God's getting it there. He's wanting us to understand the story. Why? So we sit back and we marvel at the manifold wisdom of God. Look at what God has done and is doing and will do throughout the stages of human history. Well, what I want you to contemplate with me for just a few moments are some of these milestones along the way. Again, we, you know, I hate clocks, but we only got 45 minutes left in the hour, right? And you all are going to have bellies growling and you're going to give me the evil eye telling me it's time to go down and eat food. And I understand, I understand, but we can't cover all the milestones, but let's hit some of the big ones. So you attempt to grasp, my goal is to try and help you grasp the, the big story of the Bible and human history. So what are some of these milestones? Well, you're familiar with many of them, perhaps, but let's rehearse a few. Genesis 3.15, sometimes called the Proto-Evangelium, that is the first declaration of the gospel, is the first declaration of God's intention of what he's going to do in creation, that he's going to conquer the serpent, Satan, that he will, God will send a deliverer who will be of the seed of woman. This deliverer 
will come to be known as the Messiah. Again, it's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first declaration of the gospel, is because in that passage, Genesis 3 and verse 15, God promises to send a seed who will come to conquer sin and death. And the rest of the Bible is anticipating his coming, at least the Old Testament, is anticipating the coming of this deliverer. The New Testament is the announcement that he has come. He has arrived, right? That's your big thought flow. If you understand, what's the difference between the Old Testament and New Testament? Well, there's lots of answers to that question, but largely speaking, the Old Testament is anticipating the coming of that deliverer. It's telling us about him and what he will be like and where he will come from and where he will be born, right? It tells us all sorts of details concerning this. In fact, as, as we work our way through the pages of the Old Testament, we have this theme. We talked about this, I don't know, about a month ago when we were in Hebrews 2, verse 11. Do you remember this? We talked about the messianic hope that the Gentiles did not have because they didn't have right, the, the, the Old Testament scriptures that, well, I mean, they had them through dissemination, but God was giving this to the Jewish nation. We'll come back to that in a minute. But then this idea of the messianic hope comes in a ton of different passages. We can see it even early on in the pages of Genesis. That when Cain is born, we see Eve name her son, and that's what Genesis 4 verse 1 seems to be implying. She's naming her son, hoping that he is that deliverer, that he's the fulfillment of the Genesis 3.15 promise. Well, that didn't turn out very well. If you remember the whole Cain and Abel episode, So what happens later? Well, Lamech, he names his son Noah. Why does he name his son Noah? Genesis 5 verse 29 tells you why he named his son Noah because Noah is a Hebrew word that means rest. He says, I'm naming my son Noah because I hope that in him we will have rest, that we will have the deliverer that will conquer the serpent seed. We could go on. In fact, the next major milestone in this messianic hope would be Genesis 12. God makes a series of promises to Abram. These become known as the Abrahamic covenant. And this set of promises, Genesis 12 verses 1 to 3, foreshadows God's intention to bless his creation. What does it mean that God is trying to bless his creation? You got to read that backwards. In other words, read that in light of what we've already read back in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Namely, that God is going to use Abraham to bless creation, that is, bring creation back into its original harmony, the way it was designed in chapter 1. This perfect world that we, we on earth rule as God rules in heaven. God says he's going to accomplish that, but it's going to be through Abraham's descendants. Well, also note that Genesis 12 tells us that God will restore all things by using a very particular specific strategy in order to establish this blessedness or this kingdom on earth and the strategy is namely the nation of Israel that's what he says he says I'm going to make you God's being Abraham I'm going to make you mighty nation and through that nation I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth in fact this one is it's a passage which is worth pausing on go uh, to, to Romans 9 real quick we read this a few moments or a few months or I get on weeks ago, at least a month, since we were in Ephesians chapter two and we were talking about the messianic hope idea. I read to you Romans nine, verses one to five. This is Paul's summary of the purpose of Israel as a nation. Now stick with me. 
The purpose of us as a church is tied to the purpose of God for Israel. So stick with me. You think I'm off topic, don't you? You think I'm never going to get back, but I am. I just hang in there with me. Romans 9 is going to teach us about the purpose of Israel. Romans 9, verses 1 to 5 Paul says this, he says, I say the truth in Christ I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. I don't know if you caught it, but verse 5 is one of the classic places that declares the deity of Christ. Do you see that? How Christ is God blessed forever. Amen. Did you catch that? It's a powerful phrase. But the point is, if we take these five verses as Paul summarizes, particularly just verses 4 and 5 is really kind of the meat of where I'm heading. If we summarize Paul's words in, in this passage in Romans 9, then we discover why God invented the nation of Israel. And again, I love to use that phrase that he invented the nation of Israel because think about it. If you're reading the book of Genesis and you're reading along, you you just read chapter 10 and chapter 11. It tells you of the 70 nations and that descend from Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, Japhet, and these spread across the earth. And out of all these nations, God didn't pick a single one of them to be his special nation. Rather, he takes one dude from, and he plucks him from right out of the middle of human history, a dude named Abram that Jesus, or God will later name, rename Abraham. He takes him, he plucks him, and he says, okay, from you, I'm going to create a nation. And then Abram says, from me, I'm in my 90s, right? I mean, well, he was 75 at the time, but he doesn't have uh, a child till he's over 100. His wife, Sarah, is 90 years old. Right? Do we have any 90-year-olds in here? I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's like, just think about it. You know what I'm saying? You walk into the hospital, and it's like, oh, man, you know, emergency room. And you're like, no, 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 I need the maternity ward. It's like, you're 90, right? I mean, it's like, well, as weird as that sounds to us, it was just as weird for them. Abram says, God, I, I mean, you know, he kind of cleans out his ear, you know, metaphorically speaking. He says, God, did you really say what I thought you said? You're going to make from me. And my 90-year-old wife, you're going to make descendants in a nation? And God says, yeah, watch this. And they, again, I don't get lost in the story. It's a long story. It's a great story. But do you see the point? God invented a nation. He pulled it out of thin air. He created it through the special you know, conception of Isaac in the womb and the descendants of Israel that come from it. God invented the nation of Israel, according to Paul, for two basic purposes. In other words, we could take all of these things that he lists in verses four and five and boil them down to two basic purposes. Why did God invent the nation of Israel? Two reasons. Here they are. Number one, God wanted to reveal himself to Israel and through Israel to the rest of the world. This is the mission of Israel. God invented the nation of Israel because he had a specific mission for them to, to fulfill, a function What was that mission? God was going to reveal himself to Israel and through Israel to the rest of the world. But secondly, he invented the nation of Israel to bring the messianic deliverer into the world, to be the genealogy 
by which the Messiah would enter the human race. So I like to boil it down. Purpose of Israel. They have a mission, right? You have the mission of Israel and then the messianic hope. Now we've spent a lot of time talking about the messianic hope. And so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to kind of skip over some of those notes. And we're going to primarily deal with that first point, the purpose of Israel, that God invented the nation to reveal himself to them and through them to the ends of the earth. So the point is, to rephrase it another way, God is going to put himself on display to the world through the drama of human history. The people of Israel are the props. The land of Israel is the stage, and God himself is the primary protagonist. That's what the Old Testament is telling us about. It's important to realize, however, that God was not neglecting the nations of earth when he chose Abraham and decided to invent the nation of Israel. Some people, to, you know, we stumble over that. Sometimes we say, well, wait a minute, is God like favoring you know, Abraham and neglecting everybody else? No, read Genesis 12. God selected Abraham for the purpose of using him and his descendants to reach those nations of the earth. God was not neglecting the nations of the earth. He was simply selecting Israel to be the instrument through which he would reach the ends of the earth. Does that make sense? God's not neglecting the nations. He's using Israel to reach the nations. But here's the ironic twist, and this is where, more on this in a few minutes, but this is where we enter the stage. All right? I'll back up and we'll talk more about Israel in the Old Testament. But then, you know, here's my forecast, foreshadowing what's coming. But here's the ironic twist of biblical storyline. That while God works throughout the Old Testament era to reach the Gentiles through the Jews, when we get to the New Testament, he reverses strategies. He reverses strategies so that now God works to reach the Jews through the Gentiles. Do you see that? That's why Paul is one of the many reasons that Paul is saying in Ephesians 3, Behold the manifold wisdom of God. Wow, look at what God is doing. That's a plot twist I didn't see coming, right? That's what Paul's saying. So to understand that statement that I have there, the ironic twist statement, let's back up. Let me talk you through God's strategy with Israel in the Old Testament and why it changes in the New Testament, all right? Because it tells you and I where we are and what's our purpose. So stick with me. There's lots of places we can go for this. I'm just going to summarize. If you've been with us in our study of the book of Exodus on Wednesday nights, then you understand what I'm trying to say. Or you hope, I hope you understand. <laughs> if you don't understand, I have failed you as a teacher. But I say this over and over and over again. The book of Exodus well illustrates God's strategy with Israel in the Old Testament. What do I mean by that? First, over and over and over again, I think uh, Kelly included these references in your notes, right, in your handout. So we're not going to march through all of them, all right? I'm just going to talk you through the big ideas. You can do this on your own. But the book of Exodus tells us that God is going to reveal himself to Israel and then through Israel to Egypt and then to the rest of the world. That's God's strategy. You can see this with crystal clarity if you trace the key word know, K-N-O-W, to know. Trace that through the book of Exodus sometime. This is not an exhaustive list. It's just perhaps the more important passages where it uh, surfaces. I have it in your notes, Exodus 2, Exodus 3, Exodus 6, Exodus 7, Exodus 8. Just work your way through the book of, and, and I encourage you, this didn't dawn on me until I looked up every single one of these. I did a word study on my own, and then I was like, whoa, it's so obvious. Because God says over and over and over again, he's going to reveal himself to Israel, and then through Israel to Egypt, and through Egypt to the ends of the earth. 
And this idea is, is, is profound, and we see it. God is using the Exodus story to grandstand his power and his purposes. Right? And if, again, if you're with us in our study of the book of Exodus, you're, you, you understand the details of this. But God takes the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at the time, you know, in the Exodus time period. Egypt is the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. He takes that nation. Because they're the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, they also have the most feared and revered pantheon on the face of the earth. We know a lot about the Egyptian pantheon. We have a whole regions of, of you know, study dedicated to the study of Egypt. It's called Egyptology. And the study of Egypt... And we know what they believe, how they practice, etc. God was going to take that nation. He was going to humiliate that nation. Exalt himself as the one true and living God at the expense of Egypt and proud Pharaoh. And then he's going to march his people out of Egypt in front of the eyes of the whole world. So the whole world can see. And we got a number of passages in the Old Testament that remember this. People remembered this. They said, wow, you remember what God did to Pharaoh in Egypt? Right, we could go to a number of passages to illustrate it. The point is, God made a big deal. Humiliating Egypt, bringing out his people, bringing them into the land. And why did he do this? He did it so that the world might know that he is God. Now, other stages of Israel's history in the Old Testament also illustrate this strategy well. Again, those references, if you look up in the book of Exodus, illustrate it beautifully. But we have a lot of other illustrations of it. God specifically chose the land of Israel, the geographic location of the land of Israel, the country of Israel, because of its conspicuous location on the face of the earth. It's the crossroads of three continents that connect in Israel. It's the bottleneck of the international highway. It's the most conspicuous place on the face of the earth, not only in antiquity, but even in modernity in so many ways. The strategic value of that little strip of land, 50 miles wide, 150 miles north to south, that little strip of land is the most strategic place on, on the face of the earth. Well, because of that location, that's not on accident. God put his nation right there. Why? So that they would be First, conspicuous to the other nations of the earth, but also vulnerable to the other nations of the earth. How many times have you read about Israel being attacked, being conquered, Jerusalem being destroyed, right? Why? Why did God put them here? Well, because they're conspicuous and they're vulnerable. Both of those realities serve to make the land of Israel the perfect platform through which God can reveal himself. And this is well illustrated throughout the history of Israel. And what's so fascinating, I'm just going to give you a sample of this. I think it's in your notes. Fill it out as we work our way through. But note how God always seems to unveil himself through Israel, especially to the mighty nations of the earth in each given generation. This dawned on me a few years ago, and I was like, whoa. Look at what God is doing and how strategic he is. Man, again, what's our whole point? Ephesians 3.10, the manifold wisdom of God. The whole point is the better you learn the storyline of the Bible, the more you sit back and say, wow, God is really smart. God knows what he's doing. God is amazing. That's the whole point. So he places Israel in a very conspicuous place, right? The crossroads of three continents. Then what does he do? Well, we already talked about this earlier, the Exodus. He reveals himself to and through Egypt via the Exodus. So God takes in that generation the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, Egypt, 
and he humiliates them in order to demonstrate that Yahweh is the one true and living God. He is the one true and living God. Well, what happens next? Again, we could skip forward a couple of centuries. We then discover that God makes Israel, the kingdom of Israel, the greatest nation on the face of the earth. That happens during the time. I mean, it's really the work of David and the, you know, the conquest, the conquering of David, but then it's all consolidated underneath Solomon, his son. And Solomon rules over the golden era of Hebrew history. Read about it sometime, 1 Kings chapter 8. Uh, to 1 Kings chapter 10, you have this famous account of the queen of Sheba who comes from the ends of the earth. Why? Because she says, I heard of your wealth and your wisdom. And I want to see for myself if this kingdom, this little tiny strip of land called Israel is really the wealthiest and most powerful kingdom on the face of the earth with the wisest king who's ever lived, like I hear tell about. That's illustrating God's purpose for Israel. If they were just obedient and and, and faithful to him like David was, and Solomon was at least for the first half of his reign, because then he blew it, if you know the story after that. But if they would just be faithful, what would God do? He would pour out the blessing, and this little tiny nation would be the envy of the ends of the earth. And every great kingdom would look at them as the model to follow, the blessing to receive. That's ultimately what God's going to do when Jesus comes back. And we have God ruling and reigning in the person of Christ over the nation of Israel from the throne in Jerusalem. Isaiah the prophet has a lot to say about that. But what happens next? Well, you know the story. Again, I, I mean, there's lots of details I have to leave out. But Solomon blows it. A bunch of kings after him blow it. And so God has to judge his people. But then you have a godly king by the name of Hezekiah. And God decides to show himself mighty once again. This time, not at the expense of Egypt but now at the expense of Assyria. Because at this day and age, 2 Kings chapter 18, what's the big dog in the block? The big nation that everybody's afraid of, Assyria. So what does God do? The Assyrian army, 185,000 Assyrian troops gather outside the city of Jerusalem to attack God's people. And Hezekiah prays, and God sends out an angel, destroys 185,000 Assyrian troops overnight. They wake up the next day and the mightiest nation on the face of the earth has to tuck its tail between its legs and run home because God humiliated them. Do you think the rest of the world heard about that? You bet they did. We have annals and records inside and outside the Bible that describe this. What happens next? Well, think about just another generation later. God reveals his greatness to Babylon via Daniel. There's this guy in, in the... He's, what's the head of all the nations, the most preeminent empire on the face of the earth in that, that generation? Babylon, greatest king at that time, Nebuchadnezzar. What does God do? He raises up this little guy called Daniel in order to interpret dreams on behalf of Nebuchadnezzar and humiliate Nebuchadnezzar and restore him. In fact, you could just read the book of Daniel sometime. It's powerful, right? We did a study on Daniel a few months back. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, even went so far as to publish a letter to the ends of his empire which heralded Yahweh as the true and living God. Read Daniel 4 sometime. This is a pagan king who is writing a letter and it says explicitly, he sends it to the ends of his empire, which is the core of all of population of the earth at that time. And he publishes abroad that everybody might know the God of Daniel is the one true and living God. Wow, do you think Yahweh is revealing himself? Absolutely he's doing it. God revealed himself to and through Persia. What happens after Babylon falls? What's the next big dog in the block after them? 
Persia. What did God do to Persia? He reveals himself by predicting the rise of Cyrus, the release of the children of Israel. He does all of this in advance in Isaiah 44 and 45. God's the one who's orchestrating these events in history, once again revealing himself through the most powerful nation of the earth at the time. Same thing, what happens later? Greece, after Persia, who's, who's the big dog? Greece. God does the same thing by predicting the rise of Alexander the Great. He does it in Daniel chapter 8, Zechariah chapter 9. The point is God is harnessing human history to reveal himself to the ends of the earth. God's going to do the same thing through Rome. Because who's the next big dog? Rome. And then guess who shows up on the scene and makes his splash on human history? Jesus and the apostles. That's New Testament era. But God is using himself throughout all of these stages of history. He's using Israel to reveal himself to the ends of the earth. That's the point. The point is obvious. God is using the history of Israel within the territorial land of Israel that he promised to them in order to reveal himself to the ends of the earth. But here's the problem. That was God's strategy in the Old Testament. But there was a stumbling block. There was something in the way. What was the stumbling block to God's grand strategy? What was the thing holding it back? It was the nation of Israel itself. Through most of history, Israel has resisted God rather than embraced his strategy. Rather than embracing their role and their purpose and fitting into the plan of God, what do they do? They resist. God, in fact, knew it was going to be this way. So he made Moses write down the history of Israel in advance, predicting their rebellion, their stiff-necked nature as a nation. He wrote it down and he taught them in a song. It's called the Song of Moses. Read Deuteronomy 32 sometimes. One of the most predictive pieces of of biblical material anywhere in the scripture. It, It tells you the history of Israel in advance. God knew that this nation was going to be resisting him. So God says, write it down. Why? So that when they do resist, God can say, I told you so. I knew this was coming. God's not caught by surprise. But in that very passage in Deuteronomy 32 and elsewhere, God announces his intention that he is still going to reveal himself to and through Israel to the nations, yet this time is by bringing Israel to repentance. He's going to humiliate that proud nation. He's going to preserve them so that they remain a nation so all the world can witness. But then he's going to humiliate that nation and bring them to repentance. Why? So that his purposes can be fulfilled. So how's God going to do this? How's God God going to bring Israel to repentance? Glad you asked. Because that's what brings us full circle back to the purpose of the church. All right, I told you we'd be back. But here we are. Here's the purpose of the, of the church. Ephesians chapter 3, back in our text, it grants us incredible insight in the purpose of the church. But I also want to give you an insight into another text that elaborates all the more on what Paul is saying in seed form in Ephesians 3. And that larger text is Romans 9 through 11. This passage, and we're just really, go to chapter 11 real quick. I'm going to read another chunk from Romans 11. Let me give you the bird's eye view of these chapters. What Paul says in like five verses in Ephesians, Paul gives three chapters to in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And in these chapters, Paul describes three big ideas. In chapter 9, he talks about the past election of Israel, that God elected them to be that special nation on the face of the earth. We just read that 
passage earlier in Romans 9, verses 1 to 5, right? That idea that God gave to them all this special series of promises through them, the Messiah came into the world. They function a, uh, as a very special nation with a special mission on the face of the earth. Chapter 9 talks about this past election of the nation of Israel. But then chapter 10 talks about the present rejection by Israel. That Israel has resisted God. They are not functioning as the submissive nation that they should be. Rather, the majority of them are lost. They've rejected Jesus as Messiah and therefore lost in this era. They've lost the role, the strategic place to be the means by which God reveals himself to the ends of the earth. Chapter 10 is a bummer chapter. But then it gets to chapter 11, the future redemption of Israel. Is that the end of the story? Is Israel forgotten, shelved for the rest of human history, never to be returned to again? Nope. Romans chapter 11 tells us there is future redemption for Israel. If you look closer at Romans chapter 11, you could divide it in half by saying Israel's future redemption is simply, you know, it breaks it down to these these two big thoughts. First, Israel's rejection is not total. There, there is a remnant. There's a few that believe. Paul says, he kind of waves the, you know, his hand. Hey, don't forget, I'm over here. I'm a Jew. I believe. There's a few of us that believe. There is a remnant. Israel's rejection is not total, but nor is Israel's rejection final. God is going to do something to bring Israel to the end of herself, to open her eyes to the reality that Jesus is Messiah. If you got your Bible... Let's read that section, all right? We're not gonna read the whole thing, but let's just zoom in, particularly Romans 11, 11 to verse 15. Romans 11, 11 to 15 says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is coming to the Gentiles. Why? For to provoke them to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. In other words, I got one seminary prof that used to call this verse the, the uh, you ain't seen nothing yet verse. Right? He says, you think it's good now, the blessings we have in Christ? He says, you ain't seen nothing yet. You just wait till the restoration of Israel. Continuing, verse 13, he says, For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? He goes on to elaborate in this chapter the purpose that God has in store for the land and nation of Israel and land and nation of Israel to bring them back to himself, to restore them. But how is he going to do it? Well, you just read it a second ago, but verse 11, he's using us. So this brings us full circle, back to the purpose of the church. We have, God has changed strategy in this age. He used Israel throughout the pages of the Old Testament to be the mechanism the instrument by which he revealed himself to the ends of the earth. But now, do you remember the ironic twist? God uses the Jew to reach the Gentile in the Old Testament, but now it's New Testament, and they have resisted God, so God put them in the penalty box. And he's using us Gentiles to reach them. How is he going to do this? He's going to do it in two ways. 
First, he's going to provoke Israel to jealousy via Gentile Christians. That's what we just read. And second, he's going to humble Israel to repentance via Gentile nations. Let me just mean, tell you what I mean by point two, and then we'll talk about point one because that's us, and then we're done for today. What do I mean when it says that God's going to humble Israel to repentance via Gentile nations? You don't need to go there for a second time, but jot it down. Deuteronomy 32, 21, and many other places, Jesus himself predicts this. God's going to use Gentile nations to humiliate the, the nation of Israel, to force her into a corner, militarily, politically, economically, force that nation into a corner where they have to do nothing else but look up. Because right now, if you know the history of Israel, it's really profound. The modern history of Israel is profound. And I've done a little lecture series on this. It's rather profound. But what's interesting is we see what God is doing throughout this, the history of this little nation and what God has done throughout the eras of different, uh, different stages and eras of human history. God is going to use this nation to magnify himself. But to magnify himself, he has to bring that nation to repentance. And they're a plucky people. You know what I'm saying? They are tough. They are resilient. They are resourceful. You look at the history of, of the Jew, and it is remarkable. All predicted beforehand, right? God said it would be this way. Deuteronomy 32, Leviticus 26, other passages. But nonetheless, you look at the modern nation of Israel. Do they believe in Jesus as the Messiah? Are they humbly coming before God through Christ? No, not at all. In fact, they're one of the main persecutors of Christianity. They hate Christianity. What is God going to do to humble that people? Well, a lot of things, but he's going to use Gentile nations that are going to turn on Israel. And Israel itself will be put in a corner politically, militarily, economically, etc., to where the only thing they can do is look up. God's going to bring them to the end of themselves. However, God's not only going to use Gentile nations, pagan Gentile nations, to humble Israel, but he's also going to use Gentile Christians to provoke Israel to jealousy. What in the world does that mean? Well, this is where we get to play a part. What is our part? First, our part is to don't be like Israel of old. Don't resist God's purpose and plan for your life. Rather, know your part and embrace your role. God has a specific role for you and I to play in what he's doing to bring Israel to the end of herself, to magnify himself through her to the ends of the earth, to fulfill all of his promises and strategies that he's been laying down since the beginning of history. We need to know our purpose and our plan, our part in this purpose and plan. So we, unlike Israel, shouldn't you know, reject and resist like they did. Rather, we are to embrace our role, to understand who we are and what God is doing in and through us to bring them to repentance. And he says in Romans 11, verse 11, that we are to provoke them to jealousy. How so? This simple observation is very profound when you start thinking about it. Ponder, let it sink in. Our relationship with God and with one another puts on display the glories of Christ and the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant era. That's what Paul's just spent a chapter and a half talking about. 
in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3. He says, you Gentile dogs have been granted access. Wait a minute. I thought we didn't have access. Yeah, remember Acts 21? Remember when Paul was accused of bringing the Gentile past that barricade and they started a riot and it led to his arrest and his imprisonment? Gentiles were kept out of the temple. So then Jesus comes. The temple is destroyed. And we Gentiles are granted access. We're brought in. How do you think the Jew feels about that? Well, let me answer that question. How did the Jew respond in most of the cities that Paul preached this? Have you read the book of Acts recently? (laughs) What happens when Paul comes into town and says, Jesus is Messiah? The Gentiles have their equal heirs. They're given, you know, the doors are open wide. They are granted access in the presence of God. And the Jew says, stone him. Right? And they beat him up and all sorts of stuff. Right? How do you think they respond to the fact that they are now being put in the penalty box? That God has a purpose to use Gentiles instead of them? They don't like that very much. There's a guy by the name of Stephen who stood up and said that. And he had such wisdom and eloquence, no one could resist his speech. Acts chapter 6 tells you. So when they couldn't beat him at a debate, what do they do? They drag him outside and they kill him in a mob frenzy. That's, That's how they respond. Are you think they're happy about this? No. Are they jealous at a new special status that has been granted to Gentile dogs? Yeah, they are. And what is that special status? We have access to God through Christ. We have the Holy Spirit that was promised to them, right? Read Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, all these passages of the Old Testament that predict this. They look at us and they see that we are enjoying a level of intimacy and access with God and the presence of the Spirit and a unity amongst ourselves that they look on and they're provoked to jealousy. Or to put it another way, we attract them through the gospel. But here's where it comes into play, right? This is where so much the book of Ephesians hammers on this, and it gets real practical. Is Are we, number one, enjoying? Do we know our role in this? Do we know the privileged status we have as Gentiles being granted access? Do you understand that privilege? Right? Paul just spent a whole chapter in Ephesians 2 trying to explain that. And again, we should have that jaw-dropping, eye-popping moment or we realize, look at what God has done in bringing us into the fold. But then are we, not only do we appreciate and recognize the beauty of that, are we enjoying it? Are we taking full advantage of the Spirit of God in our life? Are we overcoming sin? Are we restoring relationships with one another? Are we exhibiting the joy of Christ? Do we lift our voice in song Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, he says later in Ephesians chapter 5. Making melody in our hearts to God. Do you live a joy-filled Christian life or are you a bump on a log? You know, sour-faced Christian. I don't know about you, but that is not attractive. You know what I'm saying? When I see a Christian like that, I'm like, no thanks. You know, I don't want to be a Christian. But when I see the Christian that is loving God and making a difference around them, 
They have meaning and purpose and joy to life. They get out of bed in the morning and they have drive. They know what their life is all about. They love other people. They care for other people. They go out of their way to serve other people. They're forgiving. They're loving. They're meek, gentle, and kind. They're courageous. They have lives, families, homes, budgets that are in order. Right? Ouch, that hurts, doesn't it? <laughs> right? Doggone it. He had to bring that up. Right? <laughs> That's Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. He says, you want to look like an attractive, Bible-believing, spirit-filled Christian that draws people to Christ, live like Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. That's our job. And every time we are petty, and every time we are immoral, and every time we are impatient, we are soiling the cause of Christ. We are casting mud upon his name. We are called Christians. Christian used to mean something. The term itself, remember? It's a Latinized Greek word that means little Christs. People that look like Jesus. So if you name the name of Christ, Paul says, depart from iniquity. If you want to be called a Christian, don't live like a pagan. And if you want to live like a pagan, then don't call yourself a Christian. But if you want to be part of the body of Christ, the church of the living God, to be attractive to the ends of the earth so that they can see the glory of God in the face of Christ through the life of believers, then come on ahead and join the club because that's what it's all about. Doesn't that give you purpose, meaning, something to live for? We have that. What joy. So this is what I want to do. I want you to stand up. Stretch your back and your legs and your vocal cords. I want to sing for just a few moments. Then we'll close. We'll be done. I want to sing channels only, blessed master. Let me walk you through these lyrics briefly. The whole point of the song is so that you see that we have a role to play, but it's God working through us. It's the Spirit of God in us that makes the Christian life so attractive. The song goes like this. How I praise thee, precious Savior, that your love laid hold of me. You have saved and cleansed and filled me that I might thy channel be. Channels only, blessed master, but with all your wondrous power flowing through us, thou canst use us every day and every hour. Emptied that thou shouldest fill me, a clean vessel in your hand, with no power but as thou givest, graciously with each command. Then the chorus again, channels only, blessed master. Third verse, Jesus, fill now with thy spirit, hearts that full surrender know that the streams of living water from our inner self may flow. Do you remember? Don't miss the connection there. Streams of living water. Jesus said in John 7, that's an idiom for the Spirit of God in the life of the believer that the Jew looks at, the unbeliever looks at and says, I want that. That's the way we need to live life. All right, so my friend, give us our intro. Let's sing Channels Only.
praise thee, precious Savior, that thy love laid hold of me. Thou hast saved and cleansed and filled me, that I might thy channel be. Channels only, blessed Master, but with all thy wondrous power. Flowing through us, thou canst use us, Every day and every hour Emptied that thou shouldest fill me A clean vessel in thy hand With no power but as thou givest Graciously with each command Channels only, blessed Master But with all thy Flowing through us, thou canst use us every day and every hour. Jesus, fill now with thy spirit hearts that full surrender know that the streams of living water from our inner self may flow. Channels only, blessed Master, but with all thy wondrous power. Flowing through us, thou canst use us every day and every hour. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Father, thank you for this blessed truth. Thank you, Lord, for the purpose that you have given to us. You've given us a means of living, a point and a goal for living that you have given to us as we sang just moments ago. Streams of living water from our inner self may flow. You have given us your spirit to transform us, to help us to know and live in accordance with your purpose and your plan. God, help us. Help us to not resist your purposes. Help us to not be stiff-necked and stubborn sour-faced and evil in spirit. But Lord, might we submit to you, know your will and your ways to live in accordance with it, to experience the joy of Calvary, the freedom from sin, to live in community one with another in a way that makes the gospel attractive to the lost and dying world that is around us. God, help us to know this purpose and to live it for your glory. We pray your blessing on the moments to follow. We thank you, Lord, for the food that has been provided and all those who have worked so hard to provide it. Might you bless the time of fellowship as we spend time one with another. Might the fellowship be sweet. May the conversations be meaningful and might you be glorified through all of it. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen.